Turn, if you would, to the ninth chapter of the book of Mark. It is interesting, I have told you before, you know, right, that the numbers for the chapters and the numbers for the verses were added much later. Uh, the reason that is interesting today is the first verse of chapter 9 probably goes with the last verse of chapter 8 rather than starting a new discussion. The numbers were actually written in the, uh, <coughs> in the 1500s, but it makes it useful for us starting a lesson. Otherwise, you'd have no idea where I was going to start. So, last week's lesson, if you remember, we talked about Jesus asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, here's what people say, but you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he starts telling them that he is going to suffer he is going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, and then he is going to rise from the dead, which produces Peter's response, no way, you're not going to do that. And Jesus rebukes Peter for not having the things of God in mind. What we're going to see is this progression from this point on toward Jesus' death and resurrection. So, having talked about all of that, verse, nine, verse 1 of chapter 9, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So this is really the inverse of the last discussion. What does it mean that some of these people, Jesus is telling them, some of you are going to see the power of the kingdom of God. To understand that, we have to have a discussion about what the kingdom means. And we'll actually have more of this later. But for right now, let's just kind of think about what this means. Now, we would love for it to mean the second coming. We know that Jesus Christ came the first time to die and pay the penalty for our sins. And we know that he is coming again, and then he is coming to rule. We know that, and we would love that to be what is referred to as revealing the kingdom. The problem is, none of these people standing in this room at this time are alive today. So... That can't be the answer. The second answer could be the resurrection itself. The resurrection demonstrated that Jesus had the power over death. That Jesus himself was God. Thus revealing the kingdom of God in its glory. Well... That makes sense. I like that one. I could go with that. But let's go a little bit further, and we'll come back and answer the question again. Verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Jesus takes three of his disciples, not the twelve, three of his disciples up onto a mountain. He is in the northern part of uh, Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee, and he probably takes them somewhere up on one of the mountains. And then we are told this little phrase, Jesus is transfigured before them. We are given one description of what that looks like externally. His clothes were so radiantly white that no one on earth could have made them to look like that. So what does it mean that he was transfigured? What, what is this all about? Well, let me give you a hint. Verse 1. Some of you will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What we are seeing is Jesus in his power. We are seeing Jesus transfigured into, well, who he really is. Remember, Theology 101. Jesus is God. All the attributes of God exist in Jesus. Jesus is human. All the attributes of humanity exist in Jesus. And Jesus is the union of these two natures. Now, we know, because we have seen it in our studies, that Jesus took the divine attributes and he did not use them except under the authority of the Father. So there were times when we saw Jesus not doing things that God would have done, not doing things that contradicted God, but not demonstrating his all-powerfulness his being present everywhere, his knowing everything, because he said, I do the will of the Father. And when the Father says to use those attributes, he does. We talked about this, the whole thing about Jesus in the storm and the disciples wake him up and Jesus wakes up and says, storm, stop. That is him demonstrating his godly his attributes of God. They're not godly attributes. They are the attributes of God. So Jesus is these two brought together. And his disciples have been walking with him for several years at this point. But what they've seen is, well, a really good teacher who can do miraculous things. And for one brief moment, they see Jesus in his glory and power. It is interesting that word transfigured is the word we get metamorphosis from, to change from one thing to another. It is actually used 
for us. Romans chapter 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed, be metamorphosed into the character of God. 2 Corinthians tells us, we someday will be changed, we will be transfigured to be, not to be God. We're not good Mormons. We will be transformed into a changed body. So, Jesus is on the mountain with the three disciples, the inner circle, if you will. And he, in his glory and power, is revealed to them. We also see Elijah and Moses standing there talking to him. Now, here's the question that you want the answer to. What are they talking about? Wouldn't you just love to know what they're talking about? How are things going in heaven? Well, they're still pretty good. We miss you. That's actually a good question. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. What are they talking about? You know, how's dad doing? He's doing pretty good. I don't know. You know, it's like you watch a baseball game and the catcher walks out to talk to the pitcher. Where are we going to dinner afterwards? I don't know. I've always wondered what they talk about. We are not told what they're talking about. Moses is the guy who received the law. He brought the nation of Israel out of captivity. Well, God did it, but Moses led it, okay? Let's make sure we understand that. Moses led them out of captivity toward, right up to the gate of the promised land. He received the law. He received the instructions on how to conduct their society. He received the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. He was kind of an important guy. And then he died. Elijah was the prophet. Elijah was the one that confronted Jezebel. Remember this big fight on the mountain? You know, the prophets of Baal are over here with their altar, and, the pro and well, Elijah by himself is over here with his altar, and it's you pray to your God and see if he starts it on fire, and they scream and shout and nothing happens, and Elijah's making fun of them. You know, maybe your God's asleep. You talk louder. And finally, uh, they can't do anything, and Elijah says, okay, God, your turn. Whoosh, and the whole thing burns up. That's after he's dumped water all over it, just to make sure there's no mistake, there's no trick here. That's Elijah. The question is, how did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? Okay, because there wasn't a picture in the you know, the gallery down the street of what they looked like. Now, there is a picture of Moses in the Capitol, but where did they get that information? I think they just knew. 
I think the Holy Spirit revealed to them who these people are. So you have Moses, you have Elijah, and you have Jesus carrying on a conversation, I suspect, about what was going to happen. Moses had received the law. He had received the law. He had received the instructions on how the whole sacrificial system was supposed to work. He had received all of that. And I think Moses knew that this was a picture of something that was going to come later. And that something that was going to come later was Jesus Christ. Elijah was the prophet standing against the evil of his day. He is the prophet of the prophets, and he knew that everything that he had said in his life pointed to Jesus. And Jesus is sitting there, this is pure speculation on my part, telling them, let me tell you what's going to happen. And they're going, that's cool. Now, just to remind ourselves, Moses died. Elijah, nope, just kind of went home. We're going to talk more about Elijah in just a moment because, well, we'll get to that in just a moment. So you've got Moses, you've got Elijah, and you have Jesus talking. And you're standing there watching. What are you going to do? Well, if you're Peter, you're going to open your big mouth. Why don't you just sit there and listen? Why don't you sneak up a little closer so you can hear what they're saying? But Peter just opens his mouth. He can't not talk. Can't not now. He just can't keep him. I mean, it's just so exciting to him. He has to say something. What does he say? And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Duh. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, the next verse is interesting. For he did not know what to say because they were terrified. How many of you, when you don't know what to say, start talking? Don't answer that question. That's what Peter does. He's terrified. Now, you would be terrified too, okay? Elijah is standing in front of you. Moses is standing in front of you. Jesus, at least you've seen before, but never in his glorified form. What's your response going to be? <sighs> no. You're shaking in fear. So Peter opens his mouth because he was terrified. And he says, Jesus, this is great that we're here. Let's build three tents. The word is actually, let's build three tents. Tabernacles. 
one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. What does Peter want? Well, remember our discussion last week or the week before? No, you're not going to die. No, these bad things aren't going to happen. No, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. What does Peter want? Peter doesn't want to come down from the mountain because at the bottom of the mountain, there are people who want to kill Jesus. Let's just stay here. Let's just stay here forever, and all the bad stuff will stay away from us. And guess what? We get to be around Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. What could be better? And he says, let us build three tabernacles. Remember, Moses knew something about tabernacles. I've always found that Interesting, when you do your Bible reading, you know, you're going to read through the Bible in a year, God tells Moses what the tabernacle is supposed to look like. In detail. I mean, excruciating detail. Then Moses tells the people what the tabernacle is supposed to look like. In excruciating detail. And then they build the, tab the tabernacle, and just to make sure you understand, they tell us what it looks like in excruciating detail. You would think it was kind of important. You would think that the structure, the implements, all of that of the tabernacle were kind of important because they were. Every piece of it is a picture of... Jesus and his final sacrifice. So Moses knows something about tabernacles. And he's not going to let some fisherman... No, we won't get to that. There's a fascinating passage in Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tabernacle, same word, through the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." A tabernacle not made by hands. What was Peter wanting to do? He wanted to be saved by staying on the mountain and building a tabernacle for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. He did not want anything to do with this, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to die. He didn't want anything to do with that. He wanted salvation without the suffering. Guess what we want? Salvation without the suffering. 
Elijah gave, I mean, Moses gave us the law so we would know we couldn't keep the law. Elijah prophesied of the coming Messiah so we would know we needed a Messiah. And the Messiah has showed up and Peter wanted to stop the game because he didn't want to come down from the mountain. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus alone. Let's start at the end of that and work our way backwards. Moses is so important to biblical history, it's hard to imagine it without him. Elijah and the other prophets are so important to biblical history that it's hard to think about it without them. But all of them were pointing toward Jesus. At the end of the day, it's just Jesus. We read Moses, we respect Moses, we read Elijah, we respect Elijah. Well, we read about Elijah. I don't think he wrote anything, but we read about him. But at the end of the day, the voice from the cloud does not say, listen to Elijah. It says, listen to Jesus. At the end of the day, it's just Jesus. We're going to talk in the next couple of verses about John the Baptist, who was the Elijah who was to come. And John the Baptist made the comment when somebody came to him and said, all your disciples are leaving you and going after Jesus. And John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he will increase. Elijah and Moses and every other Old Testament prophet and patriarch would have understood that comment. They would have understood it isn't about Elijah, it isn't about Moses, it's all about Jesus. So, Peter gives this statement, the cloud appears on the mountain. And out of the cloud, out of the smoke on the, we went and saw smoke on the mountain last night. Anyway, out of the cloud comes a voice. Remember, we have said it almost every lesson. What is the purpose of the book of Mark? To demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. We have prophets telling us, we have the apostles telling us, we have centurions telling us, we have Jews, we have Gentiles. And for the second time, God himself speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Now, he's not just his son. He is his beloved son. That means it is Jesus doing what Jesus does. I'm not going to ask you if you have sons that aren't necessarily beloved, but we won't go there. There have been days, okay, just some days. 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The actual language is stronger than that. It's not just listen to him. It's listen to him and obey him. Whatever he says, that's what you need to do. So we have to ask ourselves, I forget you. I need to ask myself, who do I listen to? We live in an age where we are bombarded with voices. And I listen to a lot of those. But when it gets down to listen to and obey, who am I listening to? Am I listening to the good stuff, Moses and Elijah? Well, okay. Am I listening to the noises of this world? Yeah, probably. What am I called to do? Listen to Jesus. Listen and obey to what Jesus is telling us to do. Well, Jesus hasn't told me to do anything today. Well, he's actually told you to do a lot. Just read the Bible, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those of me. I mean, just start anywhere. Start with the Sermon on the Mount. Start anywhere you want to start. That's God. That's Jesus telling you what you ought to do. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. Do you think that was a letdown to them? Okay. All we have is Jesus. <laughs> we had Elijah and Moses, and now we just have Jesus. There is a reason we use this phrase of a mountaintop experience. Okay. And this is the reason we use it. I don't know, have you ever used it? You go to some event, you know God is working there, you know something is happening, you just feel the presence of God, and then you go home. You go home, and the grandchild has a poopy diaper. Trust me, I know this. You go home, and you're dealing with other sinners just like yourself. You go home and you're back in life. And all there is is Jesus. You know what? That ought to be enough. But the reason we talk about mountaintop experience is because we acknowledge that we go back down to the valley. And that's the way we are as human beings. C.S. Lewis says we kind of go up and we go down and we go up and we go, and that's just normal, okay? You have a good lunch, life is good. You have a bad lunch, yeah, not so much. The Christian life is learning that Jesus is enough at the mountaintop and at the valley and at everything in between. 
And I'm not saying that's easy. Because we're like Peter. We want to stay on the mountain. But Jesus had something to do. He had a task set before him. And I will speculate that we have something to do. Why? Somebody has to change the grandchild's poopy diaper. Okay? It does. God calls us to live life wherever we are. And wherever we are, there's only Jesus. And that should be enough. And they were coming down from the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, remember? Who do people say that I am? Blah, blah, blah. Who do you say I am? I'm Peter. And, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, I'm going to be rejected. I am going to... Uh, be beaten, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. And I said at the time, we are well, we know what being rejected means. We might know what being beaten means. We have an idea. And we certainly know what death is. We understand those three. The fourth one, I don't think they understood at all. It's like, uh, Jesus, what was that fourth thing on the list? Here it is. He tells them, don't tell anybody until I am raised from the dead. And they get amongst themselves and says, what in the world does rising from the dead even mean? Interesting observation. We have seen this over and over and over in the book of Mark. Jesus heals somebody, and he says, don't tell anybody. He raises somebody from the dead, don't tell anybody. He cast out a demon, don't tell anybody. Now, they all did, okay? This is the last time he's going to tell somebody, don't tell anybody. From here on, it's to the cross. From here on, he doesn't care who knows. He doesn't care what trouble it causes. He's going where God wants him to go. It is also interesting, this is the only time that he puts a time limit on it. Don't tell anybody until this event occurs. Why? You have seen the glorified me. And there'll come a time where you'll need to tell the others what you have seen. When that time comes, tell them. But until then, keep it among yourselves. But they didn't understand. What does this mean, rising from the dead? Okay? Let's say that I, writing out my will, and it says, don't distribute any, anything because I'm coming back. Three days later, I'm coming back. 
The nice young attorney who just redid our will is going to look at me and go, you're nuts. <laughs> Why? Because we don't understand the whole idea of rising from the dead. I mean, we watch zombie movies. Maybe you do. We watch movies where people rise from the dead. Apparently in superhero movies, anybody can rise from the dead. I haven't figured that out. It's like, oh, let's bring that character back. But no. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. But they don't understand that yet. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? The Old Testament said that Elijah would come as the forerunner of the coming of the Messiah. So they're asking him, duh, where is Elijah? I mean, we just saw him, but not for long, and he left. What does it mean? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Huh. He comes first to restore all all things. Well, we're going to see in just a couple of phrases that he's talking about John the Baptist. Did John the Baptist restore all things? Yeah, let's think about that one. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and that they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. What did they do to John the Baptist? They beheaded him. John the Baptist's job was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. I've said it before, just because I happen to think that it makes sense, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. Okay? He's the last prophet on that side of the cross. The purpose of a messenger preparing the way is to come into the town and say, the king is coming. I mean, let's face it. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have telegraphs. They didn't have GPS systems. They can't track people like we track our kids on our phones. Somebody had to tell the city, the king is down the road, you ought to get ready for it. And that was the job of John the Baptist. He came in as the last prophet and said, you know, all those other prophets have been telling you, it's here. And guess what? John the Baptist did exactly what he was supposed to do. The messenger comes into a town. The king's down the road there. You might want to prepare yourself. And everybody goes, eh, we don't care. Guess what? The messenger has done his job. The messenger has done exactly what he was supposed to do. If the town doesn't prepare, it's the town's fault. It isn't the fault of 
the messenger. Elijah must come first to restore all things, to prepare the way, to tell the people, to call the people to repentance. And that's what John the Baptist did. And we know that lots of people came. Lots of people came, repented, and were baptized by John the Baptist. And how it is written of the Son of Man. That's Jesus. They're sitting there going, Elijah's supposed to come, right? And when Elijah comes, the Messiah comes. And when the Messiah comes, we bring in the kingdom. And when the kingdom comes, we drive out the Romans. And then we sit on 12 thrones around you. And life is good, right? What is all this foolishness about being rejected and dying? And all? Can't we just forget about that? So Jesus reminds them, yes, the scripture does say Elijah is to come. But it also says, it is written of the Son of Man that he would suffer many things and be treated with contempt. They're going back to the Old Testament, pulling out the verses they love and ignoring the ones they don't, just like, well, we do today. And he has to remind them, yes, that is in the Old Testament. That is the word of God. That is true. But remember, it also says the Son of Man will be mistreated and treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. In the Matthew account, it's actually a little more explicit where it does say, and they knew he was talking about John. Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. They, as a society, did not repent. They, as a society, did not accept the coming of the Messiah. One of the great what-ifs that people want to argue about, theologically, we're not going to do it. But I'll just tell you what it is. What, if the, what would have happened if the Jews had accepted Jesus as the Messiah? Well, in the words of Aslan from the Lord of the Rings, you know, I mean from the Chronicles of Narnia, it is not for us to know what might have been. What we do know is the prophecy was fulfilled that Jesus was treated with contempt. And we'll stop there. What is the lesson of all of this? The disciples, three of the disciples, saw something that is hard for you and I to even begin to grasp. Jesus in all of his glory. I mean, what does that even look like? But they knew what it was. They saw Jesus chatting with representatives of the Old Testament. And then at the end, it was just Jesus and God telling the three disciples, whatever he tells you to do, you better do it. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus who was faithful, 
to pay the penalty for our sins. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.